This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Book Network podcast. I'm Deidre Tyler. Today, we'll be talking with Talani Davis, author of The Emancipation Circuit, Black Activists Forging a Culture of Freedom. Professor Davis is also a professor of the Nellie Y. McKay Fellow in the African-American Studies Department at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. How are you doing today, Professor? I'm great, thank you. Can you tell us a little about yourself and how you became interested in this project? Well, um, I grew up in the South. I've been interested in what happened when freedom came probably most of my life. I, I grew up in a town where uh, most of the children I went to school with were descendants of contrabands. Um, those were fugitives from slavery who took shelter in a local fort. My book begins in that fort, basically, because the story begins there. I did not know that when I was a child, but um, it is uh, um, something that uh, we all took for granted that the, the black, I went to segregated schools, I should say, all these uh, young people I'm referring to are black people from Hampton, Virginia. We all knew we had built our neighborhood, so to speak, uh, that that had happened after slavery, but um, the uh, textbooks in Virginia are, are like the textbooks today, except uh, my textbooks made a lot of really negative remarks about black people having never contributed anything to Southern culture except singing. Um, the music they created while they were picking cotton. Uh, my textbooks said that uh, picking cotton was what we did. Uh, where I lived, people in slavery fished uh, people picked tobacco, raised tobacco, picked tobacco, processed tobacco. Um, there were many different kinds of slavery. And so we all um, knew that what we were learning is, uh, was skewed and incorrect. Um, I don't know if uh, students know that nowadays. Um, my students know very little about slavery at all, less than I was taught. So um, in high school, I read uh, Du Bois's Black Reconstruction, and um, I more or less thought he had said it all. Um, so I would never have thought I would be writing any book um, uh, going back and looking at that same period and the work he did. But um, it occurred to me because of my own experience that the books were dealing with the, what the white guys in Washington were doing during Reconstruction, most of the histories deal with the political history. Um, and um, it occurred to me that the Southern Black movement, one, was a movement, and two, that communities were connected. And um, this I knew um, from being uh, someone who grew up in segregation. I, I knew that the previous generations probably were connected 
And once I went looking for it, I discovered people um, getting on sailboats to go from Norfolk to Hampton to go to political meetings, um, people who had been out of slavery, you know, six months, going to have meetings with hundreds of people, um, all of whom, almost all of whom could not read. So they actually built this movement with a largely illiterate population um, in which uh, there were meetings where people uh, sent representatives to memorize everything that was said in the meeting, um, that there were meetings of 3,000 um, fugitives from slavery at a time um, in a field in a Southern town with guns to protect themselves. It's, um, these are uh, stories I did not hear. In your book, you talk about no food, housing, clothes, water, sewage, medical education. How did the free Black people help build the community? Well, the ports on the um, Atlantic coast were full of people from different plantations who didn't know each other. So they might have ended up in a port with a small free Black community Usually the first way in which those people helped was um, to try to bring some first aid to the camps where black people were um, camping out and or food. And they frequently had a church, a local church that would be the only church black people could go to without being placed in the balcony as slaves of the uh, slaveholders who went to a given church. So, uh, their communities generally were too small in order to be able to help all of the people who might have landed in their community. Um, a town like my hometown, which had 2,500 people in it normally or less, um, suddenly had 10,000 people. So how many of the 2,500 would have been free Blacks? How much help could they have provided? Um, everybody pretty much or organized uh, themselves. So people who were camped outside of an army camp, um, they formed their own groups to do religious practice, for instance. Um, this was something that seemed like a sudden opportunity from being a fugitive, as opposed to being um, on a plantation where you cannot um, practice your religion freely or openly. So uh, they started having uh, gatherings, not just on Sunday, but several times a week. In those gatherings and in political meetings, those people gave testimony as to what their lives had been like. So what happens is that there are people from, let's say five different plantations in a region, people who may have known one or two people from another farm, but who generally speaking, didn't know each other they form community because they're sleeping on the ground, perhaps in tents, but with no wooden floors. Um, they are forming community with whoever's in the next tent. And in that sense, um, there's uh, two things that happen. One, it's new community for everybody involved. And two, um, people who had been enslaved who come to a, a, a military outpost where there's 10,000 other black people who've been enslaved see how large slavery was for the first time. They built in that moment and in talking to each other, this thing called we, um, meaning 
the way we use it now. If I, if I say, well, you know what we say, you know, I mean, we black people uh, or we people who are partaking of black culture or whatever, but it used to be we, the people of a particular farm, a particular labor camp. It's like, well, we've been treated poorly. Um, then the we, we gets to be huge. Now you talk about the burial societies. I thought that was interesting how they had to bury the dead. Tell us a story about that within your book. You said a lot of the people could not be buried on the plantation. So they had to structure their own associations or societies. Well, um, if you worked on a plantation and said something smart to the master and he turned around and shot you, you got buried on his land. If you died of old age uh, on his land, you got buried on his land. You may or may not have had a service um, that involved the people in the black community who lived in the quarters, uh, paying respects. Um, people who of mixed heritage who were free people or considered freed people, um, they would have to buy land to bury people. Um, they couldn't be in the local um, town cemetery because those cemeteries were whites only probably till 1970s. Um, you just wouldn't be buried on sacred ground in those um, churches. So um, knowing it wouldn't be just their family, they combined their efforts. And so the oldest black cemeteries in the South were generally formed by people um, who were free people in the community who had uh, the need to have a black resting place where um, their families uh, could be buried with respect. So it's, um, it's uh, part of our history that, um, and they were doing this before the end of slavery. It's, it's not a big part of my book and what I'm telling you about what people did after slavery. Um, I mentioned them only to say that they were a model of uh, the hundreds of societies that were formed in freedom. So those burial societies existed, but they were actually subsumed by um, societies that um, men who got together to um, try to uh, put together um, fire services for putting out fires. Um, local fire trucks, such as they were, would not go to a black neighborhood if there was a black neighborhood. And in freedom, black neighborhoods are new. So uh, the people who've been living in the town all this time are not sending a fire truck over to this new neighborhood where these free people are living. Um, so it was, uh, in order to put out a fire in a black home, they would have to build a brigade of people to pass buckets to the fire. So um, such societies were built for every need. Um, New Orleans had hundreds of them, over 220 some societies. So sometimes it was dock workers organizing, trying to get better pay. Sometimes it was a fire engine service. Sometimes it was an athletic group. Um, uh, sometimes it was a parading society. Um, there were, um, they called them societies, but they were organizations. In my hometown, they had one that meant to deal with police brutality. 
and they would meet in a black church if somebody got shot, which was often. Um, so uh, they didn't call themselves the um, uh, police violence society, but um, that's what they were. You know, you talked about David Walker. Tell us about his importance to the stories. Well, David Walker was dead at the beginning of my book. Um, he had been long dead. Um, he's in the beginning of the book only as an example of um, the kind of militant Black thought that existed in the Atlantic world before the Civil War. Um, he was uh, he was from uh, North Carolina, from the Atlantic coast, uh, Port Town, went to Boston. He was a um, uh, very... Uh, militant he, member of um, a couple of groups. Uh, he was a Mason um, and he thought black people should rise up in the South. Um, but um, I put him there because um, we historians believe that there was uh, a lot of political thought that was transmitted to people in slavery by way of sailors and people who were going in and out of ports. When uh, Walker wrote his manifesto, it was delivered to ports all over the South such that they even passed laws against reading or preaching what was called incendiary literature. That was a law in Virginia that stayed on the books till the 1960s. So, um, He's, he was uh, an example of what Black political thought might look like if you could interview um, people in slavery at the time. Now, I thought this was interesting, the arrival of Black teachers in different communities. And you gave the example about Charlotte 14. Can you tell us more about that? There are quite a few people, usually from religious groups, who went down to teach Black people um, who had just become free, um, they did not um, pick women for a long time. They wouldn't let women go. Um, they didn't pick black people. Um, so Charlotte Fortin was both female and black, but it took her several tries um, to get a society that would send her to South Carolina or anywhere. Um, most of the women, uh, the black women who did it, um, one of the things that I think people don't quite understand about the activists who went south is they went from place to place to place. Um, they saw what it was like uh, in Norfolk, New Orleans, Jackson, Mississippi, rural Louisiana. Um, Everybody I wrote about pretty much went to four or five places and they spent um, a lot of time there. They organized people, they had rallies. Um, they uh, got people uh, together to appoint a voting registrar, particularly, uh, this heated up particularly before, just as it seemed apparent that black men would get the vote in 1870. Um, starting in 1868, black, people, black males could vote in uh, some of the elections they had to do to make a new constitution so the states could be readmitted to the union. So um, Charlotte Porton was kind of um, more unusual in the sense that she um, was somewhat more privileged than the rest of the people who went. Uh, some of the people who went had been slaves, escaped, went to the North and they go back. Um, 
they all had a profound experience seeing, they were all abolitionists, but when they get to the South and see what condition people had been left in by slavery, they all had um, transformative experiences seeing the actual condition of these millions of people. Um, it was shocking to almost everyone, whether they were soldiers who came in the Union Army or ministers or everybody was shocked at the huge size of the industry of slavery. Um, so um, Charlotte Porton was uh, among them. She was kind of uh, an amazingly talented person to go where she went and, and it was a good meeting of circumstances uh, in that she was a musician and a poet, had written uh, theater works and stuff like that. So she um, wrote down in musical notation all the singing she heard um, from the uh, usually Gullah um, people who were taking her back and forth to the mainland from the island she was on um, to uh, um, into Buford and places like that. So she was hearing all this singing and writing down, she was memorizing what they were singing um, and writing down the notes, playing them out on the piano. And she's the first person to document black African-American music in the South um, and actually produce uh, sheet music for it. She wrote down the words to the songs. Um, she taught uh, children and um, uh, at really at the Brick Church and what is now the Penn Center um, in South Carolina, but uh, she uh, didn't do well with the weather. So she occasionally had to uh, get out of there because in the summer um, she got sickly as people did. They weren't used to the kind of uh, vapors that were around in August. So um, she's um, served us a great, done us a great favor by writing a diary while she was there. So um, that's how I know what I just told you. <laughs> and um, I uh, got really interested in her when I was in high school, but um, I, I'm just uh, thrilled that she wrote everything down. Black children and apprenticeship. You know, there were many stories about this um, and you brought this to life in your book. Can you give us examples of this? Because many people don't know about Black children being apprenticed. Oh, uh, well, I, um, I discuss it in the context of showing that Black women who had been enslaved um, sort of created a early protest movement, particularly in North Carolina, to gain custody of their children. Um, the... Uh, it may uh, seem logical that when people got out of slavery, they gained custody of their children. But the slave owners in a lot of places went to, um, they went to the state legislature and then they would go to a local judge. So uh, somebody perhaps who had, uh, let's say I had been enslaved, my local slave uh, owner could go to a local judge, person he would know, um, and say he needed my children to work on his farm. He understands I'm free, but I'm not capable of being a good parent. So therefore, he should be the guardian of my children. Now, they might be my children by him. They might be my children by my uh, 
husband of choice that I haven't yet legally been able to marry, um, whatever, didn't, didn't matter. And they uh, would be um, indentured to that slave owner till age 18. So um, one of the uh, elements uh, of farm life in the 19th century is all hands had to work. And um, so children growing up on farms did chores and helped the family to survive. If you were a single mother, and, and as in the case of one of the people I mentioned, and you have two teenage daughters, they are able hands and you could probably raise at least enough food to eat, but you would need their help. and. Um, in, in one case, the two daughters were kidnapped at night. They broke, the sheriff's office broke into her cabin, took the two daughters, put them in the local jail uh, so they could wait for their former slave owner to come uh, get them. And she had to get in a wagon the next day to even find out where they were. But um, if you can imagine the fear you would have as a, a former female enslaved person that your teenage daughters would be taken away from your uh, protection back to a slave owner who might have abused you, you can imagine that um, black women were very seriously mobilized by the idea of having their children taken away. And that's just one of the horrors of it. They also would have been worked very hard. So it's, uh, it was something that uh, became something of a movement throughout the South where women were trying to find ways to uh, combat apprenticeships. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Now, the black male leaders, sometimes they push for services for uh, women and children. And you talk about this in, in your book, some of the services that they, they push for. Well, um some of them even tried to get women the vote um, several times, actually. Um, th there was some practicality involved in it and some uh, concern having to do with um, being able to decide for the first time what the role of different people in a community could be, because they're rethinking community um, in, in different ways. So many women had to um, wanted to stay home and take care of their children, get out of the fields, for instance. Most people did field work, but um, field work, um, once they got out of slavery, got paid once a year in January when the crops were all uh, in. So in freedom, they needed money every Friday or every Tuesday, or um, they needed money to buy food this week. So uh, women went into the workforce, uh, mostly as domestics, but um, until they could set up a shop as a seamstress or tailor or hairdresser or whatever, um, they went and did in uh, service um, um, that they did in slavery, um, if it would pay, you know, that week. So um, if, if they got paid once a week, it could keep the family going. So they did a lot of um, that kind of work. Um, black men um, understood um, 
in a lot of these cases where women suddenly went into the workforce, they understood from slavery that women worked uh, as hard and, and, and as expertly as men did. So men in Richmond, for instance, who were um, uh, processing tobacco, packing it in barrels basically to be shipped, they worked traditionally with enslaved women. The enslaved women were in a different room, but they were called stemmers. They're breaking the stems off the tobacco leaves and packing them neatly. Um, they, uh, in freedom, um, they, uh, the men sought uh, higher wages. They were being paid less in freedom than they had been paid for the same exact work in slavery, except the pay went to their owners. So they already knew what the pay rates were. So instead of getting 15 bucks a week, they would be paid 10, whatever. And they're having to pay rent in places like Richmond. Um, so um, they fought for higher wages, including for women who were uh, working in those tobacco places. And they appear to have been splitting their wages equally with women. Um, so a lot of men in a lot of spheres of life in the South understood uh, Black women to be uh, not the fragile, gentle flower who was um, only going to be in the house with domestic concerns, protected and um, uh, clothed and uh, fetid by a male head of household. Um, there were many missionaries telling black men that was exactly how they should treat women. But um, enslaved men, uh, men in the South in general knew that um, black women were very competent workers. Now, I thought this was interesting. You talked about um, black males in terms of voting and how they were stopped from voting in many cases because of petty crime. Tell us about those stories. Oh, okay, I, I just wanna say one more um, thing about um, women. Um, they fought for women to vote too. And if you think about it, if black women had been able to vote, they would have had double the vote, um, black vote and a majority uh, electorate in a lot of places. So uh, it was also uh, smart. Um, I'm sorry. So um, ask me your question again. You, you looked at uh, voter participation when black males were voting and they could vote, oh. but they were stopped from voting because maybe of a petty death or something. Oh, okay. Um, I don't, we don't have time for me to explain the debate that had just taken place in making the 13th, 14th, uh, and 14th, uh, and 15th uh, amendments. But um, they had to figure out in Congress, like uh, what your uh, qualifications were uh, for voting, um, because they were gonna let people who had been enslaved vote, okay? So the one thing almost everybody agreed on was that people who had criminal charges against them, um, meaning heinous cr criminal charges, something serious, really serious, probably shouldn't be voting. Or people, uh, people who uh, were imprisoned uh, um, weren't going to vote. I mean, these guys had just started really thinking about that because it had previously been white men who were educated and owned property. So they were sitting in Washington going, do we need to make people be educated to vote? Do they have to have property to vote? 
knowing these new voters were not going to uh, have large numbers of either. So uh, in North Carolina in particular, I point out that they thought up the idea of charging black men with serious crimes um, or any kind of crime. Now this goes on into becoming chain gangs and um, uh, enforced labor later, but they start with the idea of uh, just pulling the equivalent of pulling a guy over for a traffic infraction. You didn't signal before changing lanes. Okay, so they they stopped them for a minor in, uh, fraction, but they put on they whipped them. They put on their record that they had a punishment for a serious crime. So they give them give the guy the punishment and put down on his record that he had been found guilty of a more serious crime. And one of the state legislators in North Carolina stood up in the legislator and legislature and recommended that everybody in every county do this. And he says, we're not going to have one black male voting in our county by the time the vote comes up in uh, 1870. So it was a systematic, it was an idea to disfranchise. It was a systematic effort to disfranchise. It was most famously done in Florida and we're still living with the repercussions. But um, a lot of the uh, voter repression uh, tools that exist now were invented by these people in the age of uh, emancipation and uh, reconstruction. Now, what is the message you want the reader to leave with once they finish your book? Well, I don't, I hope they have more than one message. I don't have one message. It's a long book. <laughs> um, I'm hoping people understand that um, the beloved community that King talked about that he helped build um, was there much earlier. I hope people understand that um, one of the things uh, enslaved uh, African-Americans have taught the rest of us is it takes a long time. Freedom takes a long time. It requires generations of work. Um, people then and people when I was raised were told, one, you have to do your part and two, it's not going to be over like that, um, that um, it requires what um, we call long-term struggle. And um, I think they really um, built into this culture the idea, this is an idea that's also taken up by many other groups, of being able to sustain long-term struggle. This, uh, building a real democracy uh, cannot be done in one presidential administration or by one law or one uh, Supreme Court edict. Um, and we can tell just by what's going on now that um, the Supreme Court can set you back. Um, we had um, about 80 years of uh, the Supreme Court not honoring um, that black people's vote was sacred and should be protected. Um, they just didn't do it. They, so we would call that a setback. Um, we are about to be really close to that place again, um, but we're still here and we have the John Lewis Act. So I, if we can get, the, get that across to fix what happened before when we were set back, that, that is sort of um, 
uh, I hope my central message keep at it, but I do want people to understand also that uh, black people who came out of slavery were not without tools. They uh, built networks and links from uh, village to village, to town to town, to whole regions. And um, if you look at the maps in my book, you'll see that black people organized great swaths of every state they lived in. Some places they organized four fifths of the state, some places two thirds, some places uh, half. But those places they organized also became names that were famous in the 20th century, Selma, Birmingham, um, places that struggle was taken up again, Black Belt of Alabama in particular, Louisiana, New Orleans, uh, Mississippi. Those are um, places where people have uh, renewed struggle over the decades. So. Um, they're kind of deeply embedded in struggle, uh, thanks to those people who uh, emerged from slavery alive. Well, I've taken up enough of your time. Can you tell us the next project you're gonna be working on? Um, I'm writing a book about um, people like Louis Armstrong um, traveling up and down the Mississippi Valley um, and all the improvisers like him, um, men, women, dancers, singers, um, musicians, composers, um, gospel singers, uh, everybody from Aretha Franklin's mother to uh, William Grant Still, a classical music composer. Um, they were uh, itinerant musicians working in the same region at the same time. Uh, many of them knew each other even, but um, I'm trying to show how um, once political activity in the South was crushed, that um, we started through innovation and improvisation to create four new different aspects of American culture in music and theater. Well, we'll be looking forward to that one. We'll be looking forward to that one. And when your book comes out, please let us know. But right now, you can purchase The Emancipation Circuit, Black Activism, Forging a Culture of Freedom by Professor Talani Davis. And thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you.